All right. If you want to turn in your Bibles, there's a couple places where we're going to be uh, spending a good bit of time. Main One of the main ones is in John 16, uh, and the other will be in 1 Corinthians 12. So uh, if you are able to turn to those, uh, you'll find those helpful. We've got, set, as usual, we have a lot of scriptures, um, but so we have some bigger passages in, in those places, so uh, that should prove helpful to you. John 16 and 1 Corinthians 12. We are uh, finishing up the second article of the Baptist Faith and Message, uh, the article on the Holy Spirit. This is the one uh, where we start um, getting slain in the Spirit and, and speaking in tongues and handling snakes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I hope you're ready. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. <sighs> Y'all are like, yeah, I know, because you're you're certainly not brave enough to do that. But anyway, <laughs> so um, the Holy Spirit is. We've made one of two types of errors in Baptist history. Sometimes, sometimes we haven't. We've steered clear of them, but sometimes uh, we drift from one to the other. Either we have elevated the spirit to almost a place above the father and the son where the spirit is the only aspect of god that we care about in the early baptist church uh you couldn't sing a hymn you couldn't read a bible verse the pastor was not able to prepare a sermon in advance for fear that they would stifle the holy spirit's moving very different from today um where a lot of us make the other mistake where we almost neglect the Holy Spirit and barely pay attention to him at all, as though he is uh, not even really part of the Trinity. But we have to be very careful in, um, I, I can't remember the names, but there is a Greek myth um, where there's these two dangers. One's on one side, one's on the other. And it, it, these would be in the water and, and ships would often have trouble because in trying to steer clear of one error, they would get too close to the other danger and fall into it. So one of them was a giant whirlpool, one of them was a sea monster, and if you get too far away from the whirlpool, the sea monster gets you, but if you get too far away from the monster, you get caught up in the whirlpool. And so the only way through it is to steer straight down the middle. Not to be so scared of either one of them that you venture too far away, but to steer a straight course right through them. That was the only way to survive it. And that's what we kind of have to do with doctrines like this where there's error on both sides. We have to steer clear of both of them by steering a straight course. In other words, instead of trying to say, no, we don't want to do that, we don't want to do that, we don't want to do that, and then following the opposite direction, we have to make sure we keep our eyes on the scripture and what God has actually said about himself and not just us trying to keep away from one mistake and thereby fall into another. This is what the Baptist faith and message says about God, the Holy Spirit. This is from Article 2, Section C. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, fully divine. He inspired holy men of old to write the scriptures. Through illumination, he enables men to understand the truth. He exalts Christ. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He calls men to the Savior and effects regeneration. 
At the moment of regeneration, he baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. He cultivates Christian character, comforts believers, and bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through his church. He seals the believer until the day of final redemption. His presence in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. He enlivens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, and service. When we are trying to steer clear of error, we have to chart that middle course. And we begin uh, uh, this statement with a very simple but powerful message against the error of neglect. It starts by saying the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, fully divine. The Holy Spirit is not some lesser class of divinity. It's not God-light, where you have God, the Father, who's obviously God, God the Son, who's also obviously God, has to be, but then God the Holy Spirit's kind of Godish. He's God-light. He's God that's a little bit toned down, a little bit softer, a little bit easier to handle. He's a little mysterious, and so we just kind of let him do his thing, and we don't really worry about him too much. You can't do that with the Holy Spirit. He is fully divine. Not only that, he's, he's God's Spirit. He's not just some life force. He's not just uh, this thing out in the ether. He's the Spirit of God, as much God as the Father and the Son. He's God. He's a distinct member of the Trinity, the tri-unity of God, who is worthy of worship. Now, some people take this so far to say, oh, well, he is so great. He is so, so wonderful that he's the main one we have to pay attention to. The Holy Spirit is, is it. He's all that. He, he's the one. So, so we are spirit-led. We are spirit-empowered. We are spirit, 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 right? You got to worship him in spirit and in truth, right? And they stress that. And one reason that Baptist churches have been uh, uh, oftentimes willing to go along with that is because of the opposite extreme of, well, we don't really want to talk about the Spirit. You know, he's getting into some funky stuff there. And so they say, yes, we, we do need to talk about the Spirit. And before long, it becomes more about the Spirit than about Christ and about the Father and it's almost as if God gets truncated into that one. Pentecostalism, one of, one of the side effects of it is that there's such a spirit focus that it tends to leave out other characteristics and other aspects of God. So that's something to be careful of. Now, not all Pentecostals do this. Some keep it in a much closer balance. But... Uh, Baptists have been often willing to become Pentecostals because they see such stress in the spirit and, and, and they do it to the neglect of the others. We can't do that. So what does he do? What's the spirit's role? Well, the first thing is that he enlightens men. Look, look, at, the, look at the second sentence. He, he inspired holy men of old to write the scriptures. Through illumination, he enables men to understand truth. John 16, 
Look at verse 13. I told you to turn there. Look at verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And he goes on to say he won't speak his of his own authority, but whatever he uh, hears, he will speak. Basically, whatever the father is is speaking is what the spirit is speaking. Whatever the son is speaking is what the spirit is speaking. They don't contradict one another. God the spirit isn't over here telling you, hey, he doesn't want me to tell you this, but you need to know this. When someone says they have a word from the Lord, a revelation directly from God, and it doesn't line up God's revelation, then you know it's not from God. This is one of the tests of prophets in the old days. Someone would say, I have a word from the Lord. What's the test? Well, does it actually happen? If it doesn't happen, you didn't get it from God, right? But the other test is, does this jive with what we already know of God? Does this make sense? Does this connect in with what he's already said? Does this align with what we already know God has said? One of the funny things about the story, I'm, I'm reading through the book of Exodus, uh, just finishing it up today will be the last day. I haven't finished it quite yet, but um, there's a passage where Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. It's in Exodus 24. And down below, the Israelites are saying, what happened to Moses? He's been up there like over a month. He's not coming down. We don't know what happened to him. Make us gods for us to serve. They're talking to Aaron. And Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest, the one that ought to be representing God among the people is like, oh, okay. So he says, bring me your gold. They bring him gold. They bring him the earrings that they had gotten from Egypt, they had the bracelets and the, and, and the necklaces, and they're bringing all kinds of stuff that they had acquired in Egypt. All of these ornaments that they were wearing, they brought this gold to Aaron, and he fashions this golden calf, and you know what he has the audacity to say? These are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Now, wait a minute, you just made that. But it gets even better, because what's the next sentence he says? He says... Tomorrow, we will have a great feast to the Lord. Wait, that, that's, that's not the Lord. It just doesn't jive, does it? <laughs> He's making a false God and then saying, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to the true God because of this false God. <laughs> See, God's spirit, God's spirit doesn't do that. He doesn't distract you from the true God. He opens up your eyes so you can see the true God. He does so by inspiring men to write the words of God. The way that, that, that this whole process of the scriptures coming about happens. A man is inspired by God's spirit to write down certain things. Sometimes it's a vision like John in Revelation. He's seeing a vision and he's writing it down. Sometimes it's God speaking to a prophet like Jeremiah and he gets it written down. Sometimes things are happening and God tells his servant, write it down. Write down the events. Write down the vision. Put this down. God giving Moses his law, write this down. Use this as a memorial between you and the people and me. Write this down. Write the vision, he tells Habakkuk. Make it plain so that he who runs with it, or he who reads it may run. Make it simple, but write it. 
That's what he does. He prompts that writing. And in that writing, he's, he's, he's not telling them what to say. This isn't a trance where suddenly they have no control over what they're writing or what they're saying. That's not what's happening. He's using their personality. He's using their talents. He's using the person that they are. They're coloring the words. They're putting in their own flavor. It's why when you hear Jeremiah, you should hear him crying as he's proclaiming many of the messages because he is crying. He's weeping over a lost nation. It's why when you hear Moses speaking the words of God to the people, you ought to hear both a a heaviness and a seriousness in his voice. It's why when Isaiah is describing the throne of God, You should almost gasp in awe and wonder at the picture he's writing. The Holy Spirit inspires men to write and he illuminates men to understand what's being written. John, uh, first John, excuse me, five, six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. You see, God's spirit is not truthful. I was telling James today, God is not loving. God is love. He is the standard of love. It's like you take a ruler. You don't use, uh, you don't use the inch to determine the size of the ruler. You use the ruler to determine the size of the inch. In other words, uh, uh, how, how big is this object? You compare it to the ruler. You don't compare it to something else. You don't say, well, I think an inch is going to be this long. That's a big inch. There we go. There's your inch right there. Little teeny tiny thing. That's, that's not what we do. We have a standard, right? Okay? God is the standard. And what this verse is telling us is that the Spirit is the standard of truth. He's not just truthful. He doesn't just have truth. He doesn't just speak truth. He is truth. And because He is the standard, we judge truth by Him. This is where we make the mistake. We often think we have to support the Bible as though uh, it, it's not the standard, as though, as though we have to prove to others that it meets the standards of truth. No, it is, it is truth because it comes from the very God who is truth. Everything else gets judged by that. 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's the Holy Spirit with a job of enlightening men, both inspiring the scriptures and opening our eyes to understand what that scripture says. Okay? All right? That's one way in which the Holy Spirit works. Another way is that he exalts Christ. We've already talked about this in the verse that the Spirit is testifying. The water and the blood and the Spirit all testify to Christ, right? Baptist faith, the message puts it this way. He exalts Christ. How about that? (laughs) I promise I'm not plagiarizing. I'm just summarizing. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He calls men to the Savior and affects regeneration. So the role of the Holy Spirit is not just to do whatever he feels like doing. It's to exalt Christ. Why do you think he, ha- he inspires the scriptures? So that we'll know Christ. So we'll know God. 
Why, why does he help us understand? God, Jesus says, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all men to, to myself. The job of the Holy Spirit is to lift up the Son of Man. That's part, part of his role is to bring people to Christ by lifting him up, exalting him, helping men understand their need for a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, I know what you're thinking. There are plenty of people who talk the talk and don't walk the walk. It's not what, not what Paul is talking about here. He's not just saying uttering the words. There's a difference between profession and confession, right? Profession, anybody can make a profession. Anybody can say, this is, this is the way it is. But to confess, there has to be faith behind it. This is why he doesn't say, if you profess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is why he says, if you confess, if there's more than just a willingness to speak it, but an actual realization of faith that this is true behind that confession, then when you say, I have sinned, it's more than just you saying, I messed up. It's you saying, I have deliberately opposed God and I deserve judgment. There's a whole lot more to confession than just uttering the words. It's the same thing here. No one can say Jesus is accursed if he has the Holy Spirit. No one can really believe that Jesus would be cursed because he's God. He's God. How could he be condemned? No one can say Jesus is Lord, not just utter it, but confess it without the Holy Spirit. This was a day when you had to proclaim Caesar is Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is putting yourself directly in opposition with the ruling government of the day. It's opening yourself up to the fire, sometimes literally. It's putting you right in harm's way. But because of the Holy Spirit, men were compelled to profess Christ and confess Christ, not merely utter it with their lips. Today, it's much easier to utter it you ask 100 people on the street, 95 will say, I'm a Christian. You know why? Am I a Muslim? No, not a Muslim. Am I Buddhist? No, I got too much hair. Even I got too much hair to be a Buddhist. Hindu? No. What am I? I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not Mormon. I'm not Catholic. I guess I'm a Christian. I, I guess. I, I don't know. What, what else do I fit in? I certainly don't want to say I'm an atheist. I don't want people to think I'm completely against it all. I just... So... I'm a Christian. If you ask people, though, what do you believe about this? Was Jesus Christ God? Did Jesus need to die? Is man basically good or bad? What does it take to get into heaven? Is heaven even real? Then you start getting down to what people really believe. But if you just ask, are you a Christian? Most are going to say, yeah, anybody can do that. What's behind it? Can you really say Jesus is Lord? Not without the Holy Spirit of God. John 16, look in verse 7. Nevertheless, he's saying, um, I'm going away, and I know you're sorry. I know, I know there's sorrow that's filled your heart, but nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. 
Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction. Conviction over sin. Conviction over our need for a Savior. Conviction over righteousness that we know what God's standard is and we have not met it. And because of that conviction of judgment, because we know we not only have earned judgment, but we are destined for judgment. It's the Holy Spirit that opens us up to that. And then he goes on, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. This is John chapter 13. He gets in the upper room with these guys. He has been teaching them 13, 14, 15, 16, will continue into 17. All in one room, all in one night. He's like, you're drinking water through a fire hydrant right now. I, you can't bear this now, but I've got so much more to tell you. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The implication is he's taking all that is the Father's. Now, doesn't mean we'll understand it all, but he'll guide us along the way. He exalts Christ. He glorifies Christ. He also empowers Christians. At the moment of regeneration, the Baptist faith, the message says, he baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. We saw this play out. As I began to speak, Peter Peter's recounting what happened. So Peter, if you'll remember in the book of Acts, Peter has this, he's called to go to this guy's house named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, okay? Peter's a Jew. Jews and Gentiles don't exactly hang out together. It's not, not the most friendly of relationships. So Peter has this dream. And in this dream, there's this giant sheet and it's full of unclean foods, foods that as a Jew, Peter would never have eaten, could not have eaten because he'd be breaking the word of God. That's against God's rules. I can't do that. And he hears a voice from heaven that says, take and eat and rise, kill and eat. There you go. And, and, and Peter says, this is all unclean. There's nothing on there I can't eat. And then God says, don't call unclean what I have called clean. Peter wakes up. He gets the summons. Go to Cornelius's house. So Peter goes. And when he gets there, he says, he's recounting later, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I remember that. John had said that, and, and, and it just came to mind. As, as I saw the Holy Spirit descend, descending on them, the way it had descended on us, I could remember John's words, and I could see it taking place. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I told you, Peter, Peter amounted to something good. Once he got that Holy Spirit, man... He, 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 really, he really was the kind of guy that Jesus wanted leading his church. And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, it took God saying so much with his spirit 
for them to finally know. And it was that baptism of the Spirit that demonstrated God's will. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. He brings us together through his Spirit, baptizing us into the body of Christ. He empowers Christians through his provisions. Baptist Faith and Message says he cultivates Christian character, comforts believers, and bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through his church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. All of the gifts come from one spirit. They don't, it's not, it's not like God's got, God's not Amazon. He doesn't have warehouses in different parts of the country filling orders to that region. He's got one spirit from whom we all get gifts. Gifts for the common good. Gifts to use in unity. Romans 8. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, building us up, fashioning our characters to be more like Christ. He empowers Christians through his protection. The Baptist faith and message puts it very simply. He seals the believer until the final day of the day of final redemption. Paul told the Ephesians, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, when Pilate sealed the tomb, there was a higher authority who could break that seal. When the scroll with seven seals on it is presented and nobody is found worthy in all of heaven and all of earth and the angels are weeping, suddenly the lamb steps forward and there's rejoicing because now there is someone with greater authority authority to open the seals of the book. In the same way, God puts his Holy Spirit on you as a seal that cannot be broken. It's a seal that demonstrates you are his and his alone. And when that day comes, when your redemption is no longer drawing nigh, but has drawn nigh, God himself will take the seal and give us the fullness of his spirit. He empowers Christians through his presence. His presence in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the deliverer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. You want to know that God Uh, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus? 
You want to know how we know that's true? Because the Holy Spirit guarantees it. We just read that, right? We just read that he is the one that guarantees our inheritance until the day of redemption. Isaiah, one of the reasons we know that he will bring us into the fullness of the stature of Christ is because the Spirit is in the Christ. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that it may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's the work of the Spirit through Messiah. And because we know he's working through Messiah, in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily and we have been given fullness. As Colossians 2 says, we have that same Spirit. That same Spirit present in us, bringing us into the measure of Christ. He empowers Christians through his power. And this one was, I wasn't quite sure how to describe this because I'd already said that he enlightens us and he empowers us. But everything we do, everything we're capable of doing for God is through him. The Baptist faith and message puts it this way. He enlightens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, and service. And I would say in so much more. Paul It's getting to the close of his letter to the Ephesian believers, and he's talking about, and we talked a little bit about this Wednesday night, that being strong in the Lord and the power of his might and and putting on the full armor of God so that you can withstand and uh, how how it's, there are times when God needs a man or a woman who will stand and fight and not just run away. and, and, And he will empower us in those moments to do that. He describes the armor of God having the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes, the preparation of the gospel of peace, the, the, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And it's often missed. When we talk about the armor of God, we often talk about those six things as though it's the whole armor. But there's actually a seventh piece of armor. And it's in verse 18 praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. John Bunyan called it that, all prayer. Every piece of the armor you're putting on with prayer. Every swing of the sword you are slashing with all prayer. Every guarding with the shield to stop the fiery darts of the enemy is buckled with all prayer. It's that prayer, that, that, that seventh piece of armor It's empowered by the Spirit, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. John 14, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You want to know where your power comes from? It comes through the Holy Spirit. When we think about the character of God, we often think of the Father as the one who's loving but just. We think of the Spirit as the one who is the Redeemer and the victorious conqueror. We often think of the Spirit as the one who 
is empowering and enlightening us. But that's an incomplete view of God. It's right in some sense. Don't, don't get me wrong, but it's not enough. You see, God is all these things in all of his character. And what makes it really hard for us to grasp a hold of is we don't understand how God can be three distinct persons and yet one being because we, we just can't, we're not like that. We almost need him to be separate in our minds. So let me, let me end with this. If God the Father is, so are the Son and Spirit. If God the Son is, so are the Father and Spirit. If God the Spirit is, so are the Father and Son. We can talk about their different roles and we can talk about different things that they do. But, but the essence of their character is such that all that is the Father and all that is the Son and all that is the Spirit, they are fully and completely. And so when we think of God, there needs to be the tension that he's not just these different components that are broken up, walled off, separated. If I had a chalkboard or a dry erase board, I'd take my marker and I'd say, this is God the Father, and I'd draw a big circle. And I'd say, this is God the Holy Spirit, and I'd draw a big circle. And I'd say, this is God the Son, and I'd draw a big circle. And all three circles would be right on top of each other. Because everything that one is, all three persons of God are. He is perfect in simplicity, in that you, you can't divide them down. You can't take away part of God and he works just as good. God doesn't have any extraneous components, something that just sits there but doesn't do anything. No, God is perfect, simple, indivisible. He can't be simplified. He can't be reduced down. So when you think about the character of God, don't think of him, even though we've had to deal with him this way, don't think of him as three separate individuals. Think of him as three distinct persons that are all one unity. I wish I could give you an analogy that would perfectly describe it, but then again, he is God. He needs to be a little bit beyond us, doesn't he? And I pray that as you know him more, he'll continue to amaze you, continue to confound you, continue to invigorate you, and leave you breathless in awe of his glory. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are one. I don't get it. I, I, I can't get it, and that's okay. I'll trust you at your word. Help us as we, as we grow, as we mature, as we become closer and closer to the image of your son. Use your Holy Spirit in us to do the work, both to will and to work. Help us be ever more adoring, ever more awestruck at every thought of you till the day comes when we no longer have to envision you with our mind's eye, no longer have to look through a glass fogged up in broken panes that don't quite reflect you so well. Father, keep working on us until the day when your work is done and we can praise your name for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.